It gives Especially me the willies the when I read about how how many like uh, criminal intelligence agencies and like billionaire sus lords were like flooding the Bay Area with LSD during this entire period, and nobody ever talks about it. Yeah. And all the cultural consequences thereof, you know. So, okay, yeah, 255 is when he starts to talk about his uh, recollections of the summer of love. So John says, I didn't hang out in San Francisco a lot. Maybe went over to Golden Gate Park occasionally, headed to the Fillmore to see a few shows. But when I got off active duty with the Army, it was the summer of love, 1967. And there was a lot of attention being given to San Francisco culturally, musically, politically. I like the politics because that's the way Pete Seeger talked. Be responsible for yourself and help your fellow man. Don't be a burden. Live and let live. Don't try to control everybody. I still feel that's the best way. I always felt that I had everything in common with the other bands that way, and I liked that bands, rather than record companies, seemed to be controlling the thing. Well, (laughs) maybe not. And the San Francisco scene seemed to be outside the regular music business. It definitely wasn't Los Angeles. I felt connected to the San Francisco scene, but there were times when we'd see something there that would always bring home how different Credence was. We went as a band to see Otis Redding at the Fillmore. To me, he was so much better than almost anything else you could see there. Otis commanded that stage. On the other hand, I remember going to Winterland. I can't remember if it was to see Jefferson Airplane or The Grateful Dead. Everybody was stoned. Somebody started to play and went into a guitar solo, and that was the whole set. 45 minutes of guitar solo. I was so freaking out of there. <laughs> Go off, King. I reacted against that. What I had learned from James Brown and Jackie Wilson was how to, he puts it in italics, entertain. When you're performing, it's a presentation. Watching Hank Ballard at the Oakland Auditorium, there was so much energy. There was competition, each act trying to outdo the other. The way the Grateful Dead and bands like that performed just seemed so sleepy. And now, from San Francisco, the Grateful Dead. They'd come shuffling out, and everyone went to their amps. Bring, bring, bring. They'd tune up for 10 minutes. What? Don't let them announce you until you're ready. And now, again, the Grateful Dead. When the dead would jam, it seemed like they'd go off the path right away and then stay off the path. Either you like that or you don't. In my world, I couldn't have my music be as unstructured as that. It makes me uncomfortable. They'd announce credence, and we'd tear out there, plug in, and go. I think what I took most umbrage with was the stoned part, and that made me different from many of the San Francisco musicians. You dare not be stoned playing music around me. Not in my band. No. <laughs> Just like, fucking around. I talked about it then, and I'll talk about it now. How are you going to do your best work stoned? Look, it's not that I'm anti-pot, especially in those days. It's a recreational deal. But when you're working, you're supposed to be working. I didn't want to see a drunk Dean Martin up there singing sloppy ballads either. Potheads always thought they were superior to the alcoholics. Now, this is, this is a really funny uh, <laughs> quote right here. That uh, For one thing, they'd have a picture of a marijuana plant on their wall. My dad never had a picture of a Budweiser can on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's funny. Good point. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I do, like, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, generally people don't like come home and like beat their wives and their kids like because they smoked weed. So, uh, you know, I still will maintain, even though I will definitely criticize weed, I'll still uh, come down on the side of weed over alcohol in the great debate uh, between uh, weed and, and alcohol. But yeah. uh, that is a funny point. And uh, yeah. You know. Oh, but he's not done. Yeah. 
He's not done. Um, uh, he and, you said, know, maybe we yeah. are entering the time when, like, you know, Weed will make you have a schizophrenic breakdown and, like, you'll uh, attack people. Well, if the Pritzkers it, uh, make it strong enough, you know, yeah, even though uh, nobody will be able yeah, to afford it. But yeah, if the Wrigley Gum people and, uh, you yeah, know. Yeah, Kovler, the Kovler yeah. Jim Beam Koof Juice. Yeah, uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. They know how to do it. They know how to destroy uh, those Chicago you know, boys and societies. Yeah. They sure do. Um, so, you yeah. know, uh, John Fogarty's not done. He says, I sure as shit didn't want to see that. This is just an unhappy addiction to me. And then he really goes off. Timothy Leary, what a jerk, a buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought what he was doing was damaging. Lots of kids did stuff and probably hurt themselves because some official-looking guy like Leary told them it was okay. He'd be backstage at the carousel ballroom, and there'd be some guy who hadn't taken a bath in ages handing out greens or yellows or blues. Yeah, it's free, but it might be arsenic. I didn't want any part of that, whatever it was. People were walking around with mystery pills. This scared me. LSD? I didn't want to jump out a window. Damn. I mean, <laughs> he's right. Like, like Sasha Shulgin was that literally like story. making STP yeah. with like Billy Bill and Hitchcock. So yeah, there were mystery pills going around. So he says, I, I could probably count on one hand how many times I smoked marijuana my whole career. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but not by much. And so they do talk. So this is an interesting anecdote that I said uh, we would bring up earlier. So I think they moved to El Sobrante, which is another kind of sleepy suburban city uh, north of Berkeley. And uh, Doug and Stu rented a house that they called the Shire because I guess they were uh, Tolkien fans. Of course, yeah. Right. Uh-huh. So they'd hang out in the Shire, and at first, when you know CCR, that this became their jam space and their hangout house, basically, and. You know, at first, they kind of tried the San Francisco thing a little bit, uh, mainly because Doug and Stu and also Tom were like, uh, did like getting stoned and were kind of into it. So he says, um, in the early days of Credence, I remember sitting around the Shire stoned and we were going to solve all the problems of the world. As I mentioned, we had begun to practice every day and we talked a lot about being more serious. There were many pot smoking sessions at night where we discussed things like writing songs and being better on our instruments. At one point, we even adopted a pseudonym, T. Spicebush Swallowtail, which was going to represent the songwriter on the tunes we would all write together. About this time, I went and got my little songwriting book, and I began to write songs, titles, ideas, etc. There was a lot of talking and a lot of pot smoking, a lot of being stoned and talking about doing this or that. This probably went on for a few weeks. Every day, we would meet at the Shire to practice. We would jam a bit, and after some time had passed, I would ask, does anybody have anything? Any new songs? And there'd be a silence and some mumbling. There's a quote from Ernest Hemingway about working on Hollywood movie projects that resonates with me. To paraphrase, after all the talking, sooner or later, somebody is going to have to get down to the business of writing. (laughs) Yeah. So I would show the band what I had come up with on my own. Things went on like this for a time until it evolved into me just showing the band some songs and musical ideas. After a while, I stopped asking if anybody really had anything. But the subject really remained open. It was not as if I had said, okay, you guys can't write any songs. I will write all the songs from now on. I simply got very busy and worked feverishly to come up with music for the band. I really did not want to go back to being an obscure band. If at any time the other guys had come up with a great song, I'm sure we would have jumped on it. But instead of actually doing the work, they contented themselves with grumbling about it from the sidelines. Uh-oh, here he, here he goes. Uh, <laughs> this is something that really ticks me off in showbiz and in life. You know, people who complain about how they should have gotten this break or that part, they stole my idea. I could have been a contender. 
But these same people never do the work, never come up with anything of substance. <laughs> we ended up using T Spice Bush Swallowtail for only one single. Porterville, call it pretending. I wrote both songs by myself. So there we were at the Shire, stoned, and we were going to solve all the problems of the world. And the next day, everything went, went right back to where it had been before. I guess we're not all going to write Strawberry Fields forever. <laughs> at some point, the drugs wear off. <laughs> I, then he says, I, I don't mean to be a soapbox or sound preachy. I wasn't yeah. a prude, and I didn't think I was above it. I just thought, man, be yourself while you're trying to make a record or perform in front of people. They want to see you at your best. I always viewed a live performance as kind of like a prize fight, meaning you have to be in shape for this. Give the most that you can to your fans. I never wanted to feel that I let one get away from me, to have a show where I'd just gone out and been sloppy and awful and stupid. In the Jackie Wilson era, there seemed to be a sense of honor, a sense of duty, like, I'm lucky to have this job. You should take it seriously, or pretty soon they're not going to let you do that job. I still feel this way. I was always making this speech to the band. I had to be the general, and I wanted us to rock. I didn't appreciate hearing, maybe it would be better if we're stoned. I think there are some instances later when the guys in the band tried to put one over on me because I was such a square. Okay, and this, this is a red alert line right here, okay? There are uh -huh. multitudes in here. They tricked me a couple times and did it anyway, and then blamed it on the Grateful Dead. Quote, they put LSD in the coffee, and he puts in parentheses, hell, you can blame anything on the dead. <laughs> so, yo, I was like, yo, that's funny, but also, yo, hold up. Yeah, when you um, told me that, I was like, what is this, go ask Alice? Like, what's go like, they're, like, spiking the, like, coffee with LSD? Like, well, I do, rem I do uh, actually, now, now that you remember that, I, uh, now that you say that, I, I do recall... Uh, watching the Amazon uh, docu-series about the Grateful Dead a few years ago, and they mentioned a really funny episode. I forget what exactly. It was in the late 60s, but it was back when Playboy, uh, Castle Bank depositor, Hugh Hefner's Playboy, was, mm -hmm. they had like a late night TV, like kind of a dance, like music, sort of late night, you know, softcore, like late night show. Like, I forgot what it was called, like Live at the Playboy Club or something like that. And there was a kind of an infamous, like legendary trippy episode where the Grateful Dead, interesting, like they were pretty obscure band, like, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the late 60s. Like, you know, we had to underscore that, that it, I don't even think everybody knew about the Grateful Dead, maybe until kind of like the mid 70s into the 80s and stuff like they very gradually built this little cult following they had but it's not like they were like tearing up the charts like when playboy had them on and given that hugh hefner was a uh, a client of castle bank it's a little interesting but i remember the funny anecdote from that whole thing was the grateful dead put lsd in the coffee and and so like they showed the footage from that and they're playing and all these like playboy bunnies and and dudes are just like wiling out on the dance floor being all wacky wow, so and they're they like put LSD in the coffee well yeah and uh, so it's like why are you trying to mk john fogarty grateful dead like stop mm -hmm. it like he doesn't want to take your lsd but there you go yeah. they, and then and they then wanted to into yeah. blame and then getting making it look like the other CCR guys did it to sow wow. dissension. In the mm, we're gonna get oh to no. this, this wow. is not the last time that the Grateful Dead would severely like <laughs> interfere and meddle in CCR's career. <laughs> Um, there was a blood uh, feud a brewing in this whole narrative, and uh, he did not appreciate being dosed, I guess, with LSD one time. He thought, you know that was bullshit yeah I, he mentions listening to kmpx that's the cool underground fm station that was counterculture really outside the mainstream but more and more people were gravitating toward it they played the dead jefferson airplane 
Quicksilver Messenger service, all the happening in San Francisco bands. But we'd also noticed that these guys were playing some songs that weren't actual released records, unreleased tapes like Janis Joplin's Hesitation Blues, etc. And so that that was where they got they got the idea that oh we should do a classic cover of Dale Hawkins, Susie Q, boom. And then we got it onto the station. But yeah, no, he really kind of hated this kind of stoner attitude and this vibe, but but strategically decided like, we should pretend to be kind of psychedelic on our first album because we get all these acid heads to fucking like, oh, dude, this is sick. Like, you know, yeah. it's like, and he could really knock their socks off because they were probably one of the only bands of this era to always play their shows sober, which I also didn't know. Hmm. And honestly- yeah. There's a lot of live footage you can find on YouTube of them playing. And my God, does it stand out when you watch it next to something like the Grateful Dead performing live in like the late 60s. Like the the tightness of CCR when they play live. They also sound almost uncannily like the record when they play live. Like it's almost identical. There's no Yeah, I mean, sloppiness. I definitely, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, his uh, issue with being unstructured uh, is perhaps uh, something that uh, he would differ uh, with uh, us on. However, like the- I thought principle- about that. We are not CCR. Yeah, <laughs> we, are <laughs> not, we are not uh, heavily structured. Um, however, like I definitely understand the, uh, the sentiment uh, that I think drives that, which is like about- uh, putting an effort, being perhaps a bit of a, a tryhard uh, in some respects. Uh, being, oh, you mean a square? A, a square? Yeah, um, yeah. A square, you know, yeah, not just like telling a bunch of boob jokes and like showing like contempt Dude, for, uh, uh, you know, the, the people who give, like, the, give no you practice, their time. Bro, like. um, <laughs> yeah, I mean. I'm noticing some uh, cross bay rivalry similarities um, um, <laughs> emerging. Uh, yeah, it's anyways. Um, I mean, yeah, I, and I think that that's also like an aspect where like it goes both ways. Like you're again, like we're not just speaking not from experience. Like like I can, I certainly cannot count on uh, two hands like the number of times I smoked weed in my life. Like I used to smoke <laughs> weed every single yeah. day. Like oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it. I un, I know. Uh, yes, I've definitely been around the block with weed. Yeah, and it's not because we're evangelical Christians who like want you to believe in the devil to like I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I've never and like bullshit, done anything, and never like yeah. And we it just ain't don't like get that it because we're not enlightened, and like our brains haven't been opened by like the amazing drugs. And if we just did, then we would understand. Like no, uh, I, then they're I, done that know, enough. We to certainly know have. What, um, I know what John Fogarty's talking about. Like even if I yeah I, no, and I, I, I wouldn't abs- go as hard like, as I him. remember like you know we have a past like doing creative writing. You know, before we got into like the podcast game, or you know, significantly before. I mean, maybe one day, maybe again, well, like maybe in the future. Sort not uh, blue way. It was, era. you know, yeah. it was fun times that I look back on fondly, and like part of the reason that we have SJ is because we did that. But I do remember, like, you know, during some of the times we were smoking weed, like, you know, your your friend, like we like we said something like, yeah, we have all the ideas. All we have to do is do it. And like your friend just like started <laughs> laughing at us, like, you know, he was yeah, a huge stoner yeah. himself, but he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, all no, you got to do that. is do it. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, because yeah, it yeah. stuck with us because, like, it's one of those things that, like, when you're a big stoner, like, it cuts you because you know the truth of it. Um, it can have a I think we ended up working t- really taking- hard on that project because, like, I felt like it resonated, you know. But mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. we're the same age as these guys were, and uh, and that that on top is so deeply embedded that, like, that's yeah. uh, that's a way to get inspired. That's a way to fuel your passion. But there there can be definitely a uh, a a kind of undercutting of motivation kind of effect if it becomes if it yes. becomes habitual more than just and social fa- periodic. Like, it, you know? Another aspect of the on top is that it's not addictive. You can't become addicted to weed. 
Wrong. Three, 3%. I mean, if, if John Fogarty was seeing kind of back in his day, these guys, like, that has been a mainstay of weed culture, like, up through my life, is, like, you go to any smoke shop, there's, like, a black light, like, poster with just a big weed leaf on it. It's, like, what yeah. other drug do you put up pictures of, like, the drug? <laughs> yeah. You're, like, yeah. Like, you know, it's so no, weird. No, I, like, I can't believe that, yeah, that's, like, one of those things where it's, like, I can't believe that I ever actually believe that, and actually, like, like, actually believe they're like would repeat that weed wasn't addictive like by what logic like i had i honestly i mean i did use nicotine patches to quit smoking cigarettes but i had a much easier time quitting smoking cigarettes than i had quitting weed and well well, as a psychedelic like dosage matters a lot with like psychoactive drugs like that where a very small dose could be just kind of mild or like even yeah. be therapeutic, but once you start upping it, it's like the same thing between like, oh, a glass of wine a day is like good for your heart, uh, but that doesn't yeah. mean that uh, pounding like twenty shots of whiskey call. a day. Uh, yeah, but, <laughs> um, yes. but you know, it's like it's just like yeah, the difference between like a, a glass of wine and like twenty shots of whiskey is obviously like one will kill you, and the other one is like could be neutral to kind of healthy and it's like but but with weed it's it's all kind of uh, mystified to the point where it's just like we just talk about weed like it's all one thing but like no there's like there's really potent types like or like dabbing and shit like that and also like like, i mean so many things like are addictive like and i really i mean i don't even necessarily believe that like it's I feel like there might be like because like the dopamine and everything. I don't know. I'm not an expert. We're finding out that that's not a, that's a little shakier than everybody thought. It, I think it really is. I really think it is. And like I, you know, I'm not speaking from <clears throat> no experience. Like I, you know, like I mean, you could say like, oh, it's addictive. It's as addictive as like TV or phone or something like that. You know, but I think it's much like that thing. Those oh. things are still addictive. But honestly, like if I'm being honest with myself, it's much more addictive than those things. It's much, like people can recognize that porn can be addictive. I think it's much more addictive than porn. Oh, that's a, like an epidemic of, you know, yeah. addiction right now. Like, like yeah, we really, acknowledge I mean, that porn is addictive, but like people will still pretend that weed isn't like that's bullshit. Sorry. Yeah. You know? yeah. I, think I mean, I guess some at, people pretend that porn is addictive too. I don't know. This is a digression. Oh God, but like, in 2022. Yeah. Are you kidding? Um, me? Um, yeah. yeah no, like, but, but yeah, some people are still coping. But yeah, so, you know, I, I get where this is all, you know, I definitely from. get it. And yeah, I mean, I, I see. Yeah, I, I feel that it is in many ways like on hawk. And all yeah, the more a- dangerous, I would feel like to maybe people who have a vested interest in this illegal drug market that they are not squares, really. I mean, John Fogarty could come off a little bit like a square, but he still had like a cool mod haircut. He had a little uniform that he adopted around this time, which he realized that like if you're going to play the the type of music they started playing you you have to kind of dress the part. So the other guys would always wear kind of funky like very hip bay area but like mm-hmm. muted, not wacky outfits, but honestly pretty well dressed the rest of the guys. But they'd switch up their outfits. John Fogerty only ever wore like Levi jeans, cowboy boots and a flannel shirt. And to this day, he only wears the like Steve Jobs. <laughs> like he only wear that's his uniform. He's sticking to it. Um, but they weren't like squares. Like we support Nixon's war on drugs. They fucking hated Nixon. Yeah. And they were very left wing. They were very anti war. Almost seems like that's a dangerous kind of position for the um, 
the kind of dialectic that was being set up. This is almost like a satanic panic thing where it's like you have like scolding, like fashy evangelicals on one side that are like throw everybody who smokes weed in jail forever. Yeah, and and, and all then on the other side, you have like people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then you have like hippie like, freak, like CIA people. Charles on the other side Manson, being, basically. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> is like this it's all, Tim Leary being like, it's all amazing. Take it every day. Like, and yeah, there's no middle ground. People feel out. like you, you have to kind of get down with one side or the other. And they were being like, no, no, no. Like, we're down with the political aspects of, like, the 60s and the anti-war kind of, you know, kind of shit that's going on. And a lot of the, and even a lot of the cultural currents, definitely the racial, you know, currents, they were definitely in support of, or in support of, like, you know, more civil rights, things like that. But when it came to, it's just like today, like, you know, I think you posed the question of, like, somehow smoking weed has become like top of the list of like left-wing priorities in like America. It's it like, really is, yeah. does it have to be, I get like not being hostile to like weed or whatever, or like criminalizing it, but like, like why is yeah, that? I know that like, it's part how of the does drug war and everything, but it's like kind of like a fucked up like discourse in a way. Cause you can tell it's not really about that. Cause it's not just like people want to decriminalize like, you know, whatever heroin. Uh, I mean, some people well, do. And I think except that, for that know, one professor, it, it is harmful, yeah, people who are narcophobic. I mean, it is, yeah, like, yeah. harmful, and I think that, like, the drug war, like, absolutely needs to end. But you can tell that, like, a lot of, like, the left wing, like, sort of the fact that, like, weed is always the top of the list, it doesn't, it's not really about the drug war for a lot of people, I think. It's not really about that. Like, it's about the fact that they want to be able to go to a dispensary easily and smoke weed. Like, It's you a know, consumer which, convenience thing and, you know. yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I mean, a, just like kind of <laughs> like you know, and I'm not saying you can't have joys in your life, like whatever. I'm not trying to impose Sharia on you, but like, I just think making it a kind of central because it, it almost starts to echo the very problematic acid ideology of Leary, which is that if you just turn everybody on, the world will magically change as a result, and that's obviously not true. No, and it's not. You could almost fact, say the opposite. To yeah, some and I think that. I mean, it's kind of like what the opposite of what people always used to say, which is like, it's so good for you. That's why they make it illegal. You know, like now look at this. You have like, there fucking, like be big wars. Boy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if we just put it in the water supply, like literally like people would say shit like about like, you know, the Grateful Dead method of like putting it in people's coffee, like on a mass scale where like we're going to, you know, dose everyone. And then like nah, everyone will hold hands in peace and like not. Which is, by the way, what C I remember reading, I think we read a while back, like stories of like guys in the CIA that were involved with MKUltra would like do that to each other. It was almost like a hazing ritual. <laughs> if you're at the CIA uh, in the 50s to be like somebody would slip LSD. Yeah, in your well, coffee we one know day. that people did the Grateful Dead. Uh, oh, well, but, you know, yeah, I'm just right. saying it's an interesting synchronicity. Um, John Fogarty, I think he was able to be honest with himself. Like he observe certain things like i feel like people know like inside like they know like that it's a lot of what's said about it like isn't true and like the level of falsehood like yeah the whole like thing of like people putting pictures of like this plant on their wall and like things like that it's true like it's weird like my dad you, wouldn't have a my alcoholic father wouldn't have a <laughs> picture of a budweiser kid on his wall <laughs> like yeah so like that's the funniest the, like line of the book i think like uh, yeah it's uh people like know that it's but it's i don't know yeah um, yeah so anyways i mean now they're hey, i get they're, paid to thrill up on stage you know yeah yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's art. Just a, a couple brief comments about, you know, uh, uh, Susie Q. That One thing that I noticed comes up in the Lost uh, TV documentary of their Oakland concert in 1970, which in my opinion is their best uh, filmed concert ever, um, better than Royal Albert Hall. There's this 
incredibly like tense, almost like Eagles esque moment of them in the studio, and they're practicing maybe like Tombstone Shadow or something, and they stop after a take, and John starts giving advice to Doug, the drummer, about how he's drumming a little too fast, and you can <laughs> tell by the looks on everybody's faces that this is something that's come up before, and this is like a tense like thing to bring up, and John mm-hmm. is like trying to be like a good uh, a self-effacing good teacher and is like you know well, that almost gets a little fast i don't know yeah we may start too fast well i don't know if in person oh, just, just, we'll just, just, yeah relax a little more okay. instead of you know driving like that because the record isn't quite a driving thing it's more a relaxed shuffle almost you know because all the the strings it's uh getting your fingers to go back where they ought to even though your head knows what the note is you might get you know i get caught in the wrong position a lot of time it's it's like learning how to drive a a stick after an automatic you know yeah it's nice to know you're vulnerable john it makes my day a lot okay tom's like awkwardly sitting next to him and he just like he kind of laughs to himself and nods and goes yeah yeah and then doug says wow it makes me feel so good to know that you're vulnerable john makes me feel so much better (laughs) and like the 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 documentary because it was made when they were still all together and at their height is like these guys just having fun in this too but you see it and you're like oh (laughs) this is like so and then later like when they're playing this amazing rendition of uh keep on chuglin which uh (laughs) yeah is uh, we're we're almost Mm -hmm. there they play this like 12 minute version of keep on chuglin which is like their concert banger this is how they like close the show and when they go into the first solo like John has this habit of, uh, unless he's singing, he turns to the side and is directly, like, facing his bandmates. But, like, he walks, like, right up to Doug's fucking drum set as he starts the solo and just, like, gives him this terrifying, (laughs) serious look on his face. And then the camera's cutting back to Doug, and Doug just looks like so fucking terrible but he's like drumming like amazingly like they're they're (laughs) jamming so fucking hard and perfectly but all you can see is like john being like don't fuck up don't fuck up don't go too fast don't get and and doug's like no i'm not not, i'm not going too fast i'm not going too fast there's a later thing where he's just like drumming on a pad backstage and they interview him and he's just like there's a lot of pressure on john and there's a lot of pressure i guess on all of us because i want to live up to what john expects of me I'm just really trying to be the best I can be so I can live up to what, uh, what John expects of me. And oh, you can God. just feel this fucking tension, like, building of just John oh, is, like, God. such a critic of, like, everybody else, even though oh, they're no. all fucking amazing together. And it's just like, oh, my God. Uh, but then I noticed in the memoir that he has this entire section where he goes <laughs> off. Like, it made me realize, like, uh. when he said shuffle, that was, like, a trigger phrase or something. So... Let me see. Oh, he did. Me- yeah, he mentioned at one point, like after one show, maybe it was in Oakland, they played a cover of uh, Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, like one of their favorite bands. An older black man came up and after the show and I'm like, you guys did that cover of uh, Green Onions. And like, it, it was pretty good. And John was like, oh, thanks, man. Oh, that's great. And he's like, if I could just say one thing, though, you know, when you guys were playing up there, there was just something missing and like that like that phrase something missing i guess is like haunted john fogarty to this day the idea that like they don't have the requisite groove that like some of the best like black like blues bands that r&b bands had and he blames it all on doug 
<laughs> so this is actually going back a little bit. This goes back all the way to 63, and they're the Blue Velvets. They're playing a high school reunion for the class of 53, playing Green Onions, and this fellow comes up, R.B. King. He happens to be a black guy. I only make reference to this because there was a feeling, especially among white kids, that the more soulful stuff came out of black people. And he starts talking to us about Green Onions, immediately after we played it, I think. This is only worth mentioning because what he told us was the truth. The truth like a glass of ice water in your face. For years, I've said Booker T and the MGs are the greatest rock and roll band of all time. Obviously, most people are going to say the Beatles, but, the, but it's what R.B. King was talking about. No one ever had it like Booker T and the MGs. I'm talking about soulfulness, deep feeling, especially in between the beats. How to say a lot with a little. That's one rule that will always work in music, on records, on the radio. Was Steve Cropper scaring Chet Atkins? No. But I dare say between the two, most people would want to be Steve Cropper. And we adopted Booker T and the MGs as our idols, even after we were pretty famous and selling millions of records. When RB came up, he got right to it and said, well, you know, when you're playing that Green Onions, there's something missing. He said that phrase two or three times, something missing. I'm thinking, well, we're young, we're just a trio, and of course we don't play as good as Booker T and the MGs. He didn't say, you white boys suck. But R.B. <laughs> King, in his gentle way, was saying, there's something in between the notes. So then he goes on to talk about how there's a shuffle beat. He says, some people can play a shuffle and some people cannot. I hate to say it's as simple as a cultural or racial thing, but more often than not, it's the white people who can't do shuffle. Because there's a few exceptions. So later, I tried to explain what R.B. King was talking about to Doug and Stu, particularly Doug. And I used that phrase all through the evolution of the Blue Velvets, the shuffle beat. But it's so much easier to play than to explain. A few years after the R.B. King incident, the night before I was going on active duty, we're playing at a club outside Sacramento. I'm not in the happiest of moods, feeling fairly nostalgic and down leaving the next day. Who knows what's going to happen? We're about to do a song. I turn around to Doug and I say, play a shuffle beat. And he says, what's a shuffle beat? Oof. Uh... What's a shuffle beat? It was like I'd been punched in the gut. <laughs> Might as well have asked, what's a guitar? This is 1967. I had used that phrase, shuffle beat, since 1958. I was speechless. I must say, I avoided shuffle like the plague for years and years and years as much as I needed it around. I'd be in rehearsal with the Credence guys, and there it would be again. The shuffle problem. No sand and Vaseline. Sometimes I'd get frustrated and angry, particularly at Doug. Young musicians tend to rush. If it's a fast song, they tend to get excited and be a half block ahead of the beat before everybody else. Or they drag, especially on slower, funkier things. I could almost see the ghost of R.B. King going, there's something missing here. Oh, God! <laughs> For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. Down on the corner.